probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is... Kyle Pinion, uh, entertainment editor for ComicsBeat.com and uh, entertainment or, uh, editor-in-chief for GeekRex.com. Boy, every, every time I can't get together. <laughs> and today we are talking about uh, Minute 48 of The Thing, which begins with Mac and Fuchs uh, exiting the ski dozer after their uh, revealing conversation, and then ends a minute later with the... Uh, half-assimilated Bennings uh, giving a very iconic scream. So um, let's start with the, the beginning of the scene. We get uh, Mac and Fuchs just getting out of there, which I think this is kind of a nice moment of pacing, I think, in that uh, you know they're about to go kind of jump into action that they, they just realize that they need to go burn these bodies, that there still is a major threat uh, that they have to deal with. And at the same time, Windows is coming to get them because he just discovered another major problem that they have to deal with. Um, so it kind of flows really nicely into each other, which was a good touch on on Carpenter's rewrites, I think. Yeah, I, 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 I before we started this, I started telling Harper how much the scene actually made me laugh, and it, it's because <laughs> you see you see the windows running up to them, and then you see them going to run off, yes. and there's just something about that visual of, the, of running one way, then running the other way <laughs> that it just it's almost comedic, even if it's unintentional. No, it definitely is, and, and, I, and it's funny enough that you mention that because in the in the commentary for the movie, John Carpenter says that when he showed this to some of his uh, his director buddies, Joe Dante, who directed uh, the Gremlins movies, he was laughing at this too because he said, "Look at that! It's just a you just dolly over and then you dolly right back to the same place. That's like super cheap, low budget filmmaking in a nutshell." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it definitely is. It's just windows running over and, and you know, the whole it's bettings like there's no like explanation. It's just, hey, run over here now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of love that moment. It is it is kind of funny, but it works. So, uh, yeah, windows brings them into the room. And but of course, now there's nothing there. The classic kind of horror movie trope, which I wonder, I don't think they show the entire room, but is are his bloody clothes not still there? Like, or is it just that? He's, you know, the, the the chair that he was sitting in is not there either. So, you know, even though the thing was, you know, in the middle of assimilating, I guess it took took a moment to clean up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was wondering, too. I, I, I mean, I, I guess one thing it does do, though, is it sort of leaves a question of what it does with the bodies mm-hmm. that it uh, that it copies. And, uh, you know, oh, I, I, I seem to recall, I think the film, this, the film answers that later. Right. If I remember right. Uh, sort of, sort of not. I mean, that's something that I think is kind of up for debate in that, you know, the way that Blair explains it is essentially just that, you know, that it kind of absorbs the the life form that it's taking over, but then it turns into looking like it. So, I mean, if you just take that and that's like the only piece of real evidence you have, then I guess I don't I don't know about the clothes and everything like that, but it just, you know, it attacks it and digests it and then turns into it and I guess if it's two different things, like in the scene with the dogs, it was in the process of splitting into, 
you know, a couple of the dogs that it had, you know, absorbed. But in mm. this case, it's just the one person. So, yeah, it's definitely one of those things that the movie doesn't make clear. And I think that's actually I, I like that it doesn't really make it extremely, you know, there's not like a rule book set forth about how the thing works. And I think that actually works well for the movie because it sets it up for, you know, makes the makes it a lot more vague in terms of the mystery of what's going on. Well, yeah, I mean, it should be like unknowable horror, right? I mean, sort of a cosmic thing that you can't mm-hmm. quite wrap your brain around. So whatever you think is the worst possible thing that could have happened to that guy's body is probably what happened. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I certainly do wonder about how, uh, you know, even putting aside that it cleaned up and moved the chair and all that, where it got those clothes from <laughs> when he, when he's right. running around. So <laughs> I don't know if, you know, if in the movie the thing is supposed to be able to like copy you know, clothing and stuff like that. They, they make a big deal in the prequel um, to its detriment. I think that the thing cannot replicate inorganic stuff. So they make a, instead of the, the amazing blood test that we get in this movie and that scene, they just check people for if they have fillings in their teeth, which is way less exciting. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I've never seen the prequel. So, uh, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I can recommend it necessarily. It answers questions that you don't really want answered, and it, uh, it it doesn't even really do that in a very exciting way, unfortunately. But is it about the Norwegian station? It is. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting movie. I mean, if you're a big fan of this movie, it's it's worth checking out. But yeah, it's it's the Norwegian camp, and they do bend over backwards to kind of make it fit into what you see there in this movie. Okay. It has a female lead, which is interesting, um, but doesn't really do anything in particular with that. So. Yeah, there's, there's. I have a lot of issues with the prequel. You know, on top of the fact that this movie did not need a prequel, but yeah, it it explains some of that stuff that really kind of takes some of the mystery out of this movie, like uh, about the inorganic stuff, because that kind of ruins the ending of this movie in some ways. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, I like Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Yeah, so, I do too, uh, generally. Yeah, well, that's that's a shame. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So they uh, they see the broken window and and look out, and we get this. Uh, what I think is a pretty eerie looking shot where we just see Bennings from behind kind of running awkwardly in the snow. Like it, like you can tell it's either like he's injured or he like, maybe it's almost like he doesn't know how to run yet. Like he hasn't, you know, absorbed that part of his brain, the human brain yet or something. It's, but the way he's running in the snow and, and uh, you only see him from behind and the kind of a silhouette is, is kind of an eerie look. Yeah. I, I, I want to say, um, you know, when, when you asked me to, to take part in this, mm-hmm. I, the first, the first minute that I thought of was this particular minute. Yeah. And I, I hadn't seen this movie in a very, very long time, probably. Oh my God. I think I saw it 25 years ago, um, when I was a kid and then I saw it again at your house for one of your Halloween parties. Yeah, that's right. And that. That, that was the first time I seen it in a long time and I couldn't remember anything about it. So I was like, well, it's almost like watching it from the beginning again. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this was a scene that stuck with me and it was all because of Benning, uh, because of the way uh, or at least you know, thing as possessed Benning, possessing mm-hmm. Benning. And it, it's the way he steps into the snow. It's the way he falls into the snow. It's the way he's surrounded by those flares. And, of course, that's, that uh, monstrous-sounding, camel-sounding scream um, that, uh, that he echoes out of, his, out of his body, which is just uh, incredible. Uh, that, that just was haunting to me for so long. And it's, it, and, and still even to this day, uh, having rewatched some of the movie before we even did this, this is still the thing that affects me the most. I can't tell you why, 
other than it's just an eerie as frick visual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. This is definitely one of the kind of iconic parts of the movie where, you know, like you said, he kind of falls down in the snow. They all run up to him. Fuchs has to tackle windows because he knows like it's not him anymore. Like, you you know, you can't touch him or you might get infected too. And everybody shows up and they've got this, the way it's silhouetted against like the background is just completely black. Like it's pitch black outside and and you you still, Bennings is still just kind of leaning over. Like we still haven't seen his face yet. So then when he lifts up and reveals his face and what's scary about it is that his face is n- basically normal. You know, that it's, I think it's what makes the scene so creepy is that kind of sense of uncanny valley, like that he's, he's a person, but not quite a person. Like, yeah. you know, it's not, he's not a monster, but he's not human either. And so the way he just looks up and he's so eerily calm uh, in the situation where they're all freaking out and staring at him and they're all circling him. And the way he just slowly looks up is so creepy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, and he's got those hands, you know, the tentacle hands that are sort of still sort of formulating back into human hands. And I I, I mean, again, it's credit to performance. I mean, we've been saying that for the past few minutes this week but this is all acting in his eyes you know and 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 it's sort of you can tell that he's playing the idea of a monster that only has like an understanding of this is my prey (laughs) and i am surrounded by it and this is sort of like this weird mixture of fear with with uh anger with hunger with misunderstanding and uh, it's it's a really like powerful moment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, th- just those few seconds, even before he starts with the the scream, you know, it's very it's made very clear just by his facial expressions that this is not Bennings anymore. This is not a person, even really. It just you know, the look in his eyes, he, his eyes almost look kind of darker. For, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, the the whole thing is just super eerie, and then of course we get that scream, which yeah, like you mentioned when I, when I asked if you uh, had any any part of the movie in particular you might want to talk about, and you were like that part where the guy has that weird scream. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't even remember. I couldn't even remember what actor did it. I just remembered the scene. I, I mean, geez, for a minute I thought it was Wilford Brimley that did it. It was <laughs> it, you know it had left it had left me every detail about it, and this movie had almost had left me except for that bit. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I'm weird. <laughs> no, and I think, uh, you know, if you're going to remember something about the movie, this this scene is one of the most memorable bits, I think. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about the the sound design of it, too, because this the scream to me is one of the most iconic bits of sound design in movie history. Like to me, it's 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 in there in my little, you know, the library in my head of favorite sound effects. It's up there with like, you know, the the lightsabers and blasters and Star Wars and that, that kind of thing, because it's just so it's so different from what you're expecting to come out of his mouth. Like you think it might be some kind of growl or a roar or, or even like a hiss or, you know, you know, some kind of animalistic sound. And it's something that's so alien and foreign and just so unnatural to be coming out of his mouth. And it it works just absolutely perfectly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, do you know like what they utilize to sort of develop that? I mean, has that been written about at all? 
A, a little bit. I wish I, I knew a little bit more detail, but there's not a whole lot out about it. But basically what I've read is that it's a bunch of different, it starts as a bunch of different human screams that they then played through um, some uh, like old school samplers. So they're playing them at like different pitches and different speeds all together. So I don't, I don't know if those were like screams that they had from like a library or if they like went around and got people on the crew and cast the scream and then did it. I'm not sure. And then in the in the last part of it that we get at like the very very tail end of this minute where it gets really kind of kind of iconic weird kind of sound to it too is some kind of animal too that they uh, they did the same thing too where they layered a bunch of them and then played them at different speeds and stuff like that so you just get this really kind of unnatural like you can tell it's a scream of some kind but it's definitely not from anything you know we've ever seen or heard before it's it's very you know like you said kind of unknowable cosmic it definitely gives that that vibe that's awesome yeah so it's a uh, it's certainly one of the iconic sound bits and it's something that they uh they use bits of this scream in other parts too um like with uh with norris with the spider head and stuff like that i think they use some of the same same idea there um so it's something they obviously really liked yeah when i was reading about it the guy that came up with the sound was uh named craig harris a guy that worked with uh with the sound team on the movie Oh, and you mentioned the uh, the gloves that he's wearing, and this is something that I'm surprised I never really noticed. But I guess you know the look on Benning's face is so, you know, it's so interesting. I think I'm always focused on that. But those the gloves, the prop gloves that he's wearing of those hands that are not quite formed, like you said, they're actually the same ones that um, that Palmer wears when he gets uh, gets transformed later. So it's the exact same prop, which. At this point, they had already filmed that scene and they were just trying to find something to show that Bennings was not quite, you know, finished assimilating. And so they were just like, yeah, slap those those gloves that we used for the Palmer thing on him. (laughs) (laughs) Anything to save a buck, man. Yes. (laughs) I almost wondered, like, I I, I guess everybody takes takes influence from this thing. But there's a there's a not too unsubtle nod to that Munch the Scream painting. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got those extra long hands and he doesn't quite put them to his head or anything. But we are looking at a balding kind of figure doing a similar sort of scream out into the void like that. I can't help but wonder if maybe he took some visual influence from that painting. You know, that's funny. I've never thought about that. But you're right. There's a lot of parallels there. You could definitely make that comparison. And I I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was something Carpenter considered putting this together. So, yeah, especially with the hand, the elongated hands that really work works perfectly with that idea for sure yeah well i'm, t- I'm, I'm fucking smart man <laughs> yeah yeah that's why i had you on the show man <laughs> and uh let's see i think the only other major thing i had in my notes is that for whatever reason again in the tv version the only difference in this minute is that there's no alarm sound when they're chasing after them okay let me talk about the alarm <laughs> sound for a yes. second though uh, who sounded the alarm number one Excellent question uh, because this is – all these dudes come running out at once, and I, I'd like to know who thought it was thought it was a timely enough time to, to sound the alarm. Maybe the guy just uh, you know got away from everything. Who's to assume he was possessed by anything? <laughs> they're making a lot of logic leaps here uh, for scientists, and I don't think they're going through the method whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some logic leaps, and there's this, – this minute too is a great example of like – movie magic uh time jumps too because you know the way that you know they look out that window and then they run outside and then like no more than five seconds later and every single person in the in the camp is outside already 
Yeah, we know that McCready is pretty quick to uh, hit that alarm because um, when the when the whole dog kennel thing happened, he just hears some kind of odd sound and immediately cracks and, and cracks the fire alarm glass and, and pulls it like with, having no idea what's going on. And maybe he did the same thing here. He's he's uh, he's got a uh, he's pretty trigger happy on that uh, fire alarm. <laughs> I mean, geez, remember how long it took Childs to get that damn flamethrower to <laughs> kill the, the kill the monster dog? I mean, he comes running out the uh, the base like like there ain't nothing to it. He, they, they certainly hustle on this uh, this one to get out here. Yeah. When they have no idea what the issue is. Right. Um, yeah, so, uh, I think that was, uh, that's the only thing I had, um, uh, had left for this one. It's, it's definitely one of the, uh, iconic bits of the movie, um, and, uh, you know, leads into, uh, a, a new chapter in the movie where, where we know that anybody around them could be turned into one of these monsters and, and definitely get a creepy visual and audio representation of that here. Yeah, I, I like how it sets us up too, man. And that was kind of like my last sort of thought about it is mm-hmm. that, I think in a lesser film, uh, they would have probably already tried to establish that, oh, you can't trust anybody. And somebody would have already like the monster would have already been able to talk and been able to fool uh, his, his the, 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 the other scientists. And uh, I like that this this one catches the monster mid transformation and you, you get this sense not only in the minute previous about how it happens, but how awkward it is to get to that point. It can't just immediately assimilate. It has to, it has to learn. It has to observe. And it doesn't get that opportunity because uh, everyone's already aware of what it's doing, um, which, you know, logic leaps aside. I think it at least, uh, provides just a little bit of dramatic pause that uh i don't think many films now would do no i think you're right it's a the movies a gives a very slow build to this point where you know we're, we're 48 minutes into the movie and now is the first time that a person at the camp has been attacked in some way like the first victim essentially and and like you said too that you know the fact that you know it, it didn't have a chance to finish and all that even though like we mentioned earlier that, you know, there's not like a rule book for how the thing works and, and that I'm glad that there's not, that they do leave it kind of vague, but it gives you the sense that as a viewer, there is an internal logic to the movie, even if it's one that we could not possibly understand or that's not revealed to us entirely. Um, so I think that works really well, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of set that up. Cool. So I think that's, that's pretty much all I've got for, uh, for this one. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention? No, I, I hit, I, I shot my wad, dude. <laughs> All right. With that visual uh, in in your heads, listeners, we're going to wrap up uh, Minute 48. Um, So uh, one thing you can do is go to moviesbyminutes.com to check out a whole collection of other podcasts like this one. So, uh, you know, there are tons of other movies that are doing this Movies by Minute format, which is really cool. It's kind of, you know, gave me the inspiration to do it myself. I've been, uh, just as a recommendation, I've been listening to the Alien Minute podcast uh, recently, and I've been really, really enjoying that. And uh, by the time this episode comes out, I will have been on the DC Cinematic Universe Minute on uh, minutes 11 through 15. So, you know, you're welcome to go and check that out as well. Um, Yeah, there's a whole network of of really fun shows like this one. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. God bless Uh, your soul, Harper, for the latter, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, before I was on, I was like, you guys know I really don't like this movie right and they're like yeah that's that's okay <laughs> it's like well good <laughs> yeah so anyways that'll that'll wrap this one up but uh make sure to come back tomorrow for another episode of the thing minutes
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thethingminute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out.